0: hello and welcome to Superhogs titans podcast today i'm delighted to be joined by industry titan cliff johnson cliff how are you i'm doing great it's a pleasure to be here uh, thanks for having me today it's a pleasure to have you on the pod um to make you feel super welcome i put the background as woodstock vermont have i hit it am i in the right place
1: Oh, you nailed it. Right out my window here is uh, essentially the view that you're seeing, but the leaves are not quite there yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. How is life in Woodstock, Vermont right now?
1: Uh, it's, It's beautiful. We just relocated here from Atlanta recently. And so we're enjoying the mountains, the rivers, and just the wilderness in general. In fact, I had a a bear rummaging through my compost this morning. So <laughs> some wow. things that I didn't deal with in Atlanta, but uh new challenges.
0: <laughs> oh, wow, that's mad. Did you get did you manage to get a a picture of it?
1: No, I saw the uh the remnants and then I saw him on the road when I, I went for a run this morning. So it was <laughs> uh so he's hopefully he keeps going that way. <laughs> 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 All right.
0: Well, in my ignorance, as I've said a few times on the pod, I'm embarrassed to say I've never been to the United States of America. Um, I hope to to rectify that very soon when things are, things are more normal. I googled a lot of pictures of Vermont. Wow, what a beautiful place. I can see why you're living there.
1: Yeah, it really is a lot of untouched wilderness here. And it's uh, a nice place. I have two little kids, a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And so it's just uh, wonderful to be able to get out with them and experience uh, four seasons and their full effects. So we definitely have big winters here. There's a little ski resort in town and and a lot of snow. So we're ready for that.
0: <laughs> wow. No, that's great. Getting four seasons. In the UK, we have one, which is uh, three, three <laughs> seasons of rain and then a very short one of sunshine.
1: That was my uh, life in Portland, although our sunshine season was a little longer there, but uh, I I feel (laughs) (laughs) you.
0: Well, for anyone who doesn't know Cliff, and let's be honest, everybody knows Cliff. Um, Cliff is currently applying his trade as the VP of new homes at Rialta.com, whilst also sitting on the board of of Maple Micro Development, um, Cliff, you've got an amazingly interesting story in vacation rental, um, which I'm sure you're going to tell us all about. But yeah, for the for the listeners to the pod, can you just give a sort of um, overview of how you got started?
1: Yeah, so I uh, I was started out my career as a tax attorney. So I actually went to school here in Boston, uh, pretty close to where I live now but I, um, I worked as a tax attorney for three and a half years, worked with a lot of different businesses across different industries, and found myself more and more interested in what the businesses did than the work I was doing on the tax law side, as exciting as that sounds. And so I, uh, I decided I either was gonna start my own law firm, which would have given me more flexibility in terms of the areas I would practice in, or start a business. And that's when I met Eric Breon and started, uh, co-founded Vicasa together and uh, rode that wild ride for about eight and a half years. But it was a lot of fun. And I, you know, we could maybe talk a bit about that, but uh, I actually just caught up with Eric on Saturday and uh, reminisced a bit near our our first office. Um, Where was the first office? in northwest portland well technically it was in his living uh living room dining room (laughs) but then we actually got an office about four months into starting the business Uh, that was really like almost directly between where he lived and where i lived in northwest portland
0: wow wow and that must have been i mean quite quite the journey how do you how can you sum that up but could you try yeah i mean really
1: uh the thing that there's a lot of things that Eric and I, as they would have had in common when we first met. So uh, when I first met him, we had a three hour conversation and we didn't talk about Vacasa at all. It was just this discussion about like, life philosophy and how to run a business and how to make an impact um, with a positive impact with the business, that type of thing. Um, and it turned out, you know, we had a lot in common there. Uh, but he had one property that was his wife's family's property um, on a little 400 square foot cottage on the wrong side of the highway in Long Beach, Washington. So, um, but you know it was still in a, a nice spot to attract tourists. So uh, that was our really our anchor property was that property. But we had a very open vision of what we were going to do. And in fact, when we launched the company, we launched really two products. One was our full service management product, which is the core of the company today. And the other was a marketing and booking service, which was really just handling um, the advertising, channel management, distribution, um, and guest booking process, which at that time wasn't all online. Most of it was happening over the phone. And there was a lot of room to improve it. Um, So we saw a lot of opportunity there. The thing we found out pretty quickly was that we didn't have enough control over the guest experience with the booking and marketing side, especially at that time where a lot of home details were not available through APIs and other things. And so we focused instead on the full service business. And that really started to take off. I mean, the differentiator from the onset was just our approach to managing these homes was very tech forward, was very analytical. Um, so we, in the early days, we, we nailed it on both sides in terms of we delivered a really high uh, quality guest and owner experience, but we were also generating a ton of revenue from these homes. And it ended up being an area that I focused on throughout my career is really how to optimize revenue for any individual property. And it's uh, we we could probably have a four-hour conversation on that, but I won't bore people who are not as interested in that. <laughs> but uh, that was something that really helped us from the early stage is we were doubling and tripling revenue for owners uh, that had either been managing it on their own or through another company almost from day one for the first year we started the company. And that led us to getting a lot of owner referrals and really growing the company organically For the first uh, five and a half years, we were bootstrapped and just using all of our profits to help grow the business. And it was a lot of fun. I mean, one of the things that we... I, I grew up on a farm in Missouri, and so worked from dawn to dusk and beyond every day. And Eric grew up similar background, working class family, and just worked a ton. And we both started working at 12 years old. So when we met... Uh, that wasn't a problem at ever, you know, we always were both working a ton and uh, and then we quickly found kind of where our strengths were and allowed us to focus in those different areas. Uh, and then the the key part was just bringing on the right team members at the right time. And I think we got really lucky, um, to be honest, because it's it's a hard thing to do is to at that time, you know, we were starting the company during a recession. So there were more talented people available. Um, that were willing to come work for a startup. And there might be like in today's environment where it's a little more competitive. Um, but Kimberly White was our first hire. She's still at the Casa today and uh, did just an incredible job like complementing the areas that Eric and I lacked. You know, like a funny example of this is Eric and I both love to camp so our standards for what a home needs to have to be a good vacation rental are quite a bit lower than like the average guest, I would say. <laughs> but Kimberly was an interior designer and had that background. So I had just a much better sense for like what type of amenities guests would want and the quality of the design of the interior and that side. So she really brought like filled a blind spot that we had. And that that became true across the board. I mean, the, I, I'll, I''ll always name like our core housekeepers at the beginning. And they all became such critical pieces of the company's growth over time because we had just this amazing team of lead housekeepers who became general managers in their markets um, across Mount Hood, uh, Chris Brown, and Rogene McIntyre, and Sun River Bend area, and Emma Paulson out on the coast, and Donna Red on the southern coast, and it was just an amazing group of people that like we just got really lucky and we also took really great care of them and especially in those early days i think that's something that looking back on it we did organically and one of my regrets is not putting more structure around like codifying that and making sure that became part of the dna that survived growth you know
0: it's very hard then isn't it when you when you you go into growth mode to retain some of that some of those quirks that have helped help get you there right like Making sure your team can progress. It sounds to me like this was this you what you said when you first met your business partner. It was all about the idea that you shared the same philosophy. So I guess this idea of looking after people and promoting and finding the right people to hire was 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 very central to that.
1: Oh, definitely. In fact, we put uh, at that time, um, you know, when the labor market was there was were a lot of options. We put a company minimum wage in. At the time we started at $12 an hour, um, which was about 50% above market for a lot of the roles that we were hiring for. Um, But we also offered benefits from day one. So we offer like a 401k match So we were contributing to uh, the retirement, uh, employees retirement from day one and and tried to do as much as we could and like introducing health insurance across the board early days, um, even pre uh, Obamacare and those types of things. Trying to really create a culture where we were supporting our employees in their uh, in their salary and their pay, but also in their growth and their professional growth. And in fact, I got to meet with one of our early employees, uh, Jules Huber, uh, while I was back in Portland this weekend. And it's just an awesome story. Like Jules is always a talented person but never had the same opportunity until um, she got to the cost and was able to progress through the ranks. And she's running a really large region now covering through Alaska and down into Oregon. Mm-hmm. And she's just great at it, you know, and she's earned every bit of it, but it's just cool to see those stories where people were able to come in and uh, execute and be rewarded for their, uh, their hard work and, and move up. And um, I think getting that codified, is the hard part, you know, it's like, how do you do that in a way that um, really values, I would say, your internal team equal to or above, at least on par with any external candidate as you grow.
0: It's very interesting. I guess your commitment to hard work, which by the way, I think is the number one ingredient you need to be successful. Um, I guess your um commitment to that hard work meant that you could also spot people that were also willing to work very hard and help you guys get where you need to go.
1: Yeah, definitely. And and you know, it's it's also setting the right expectations, I would say. As I've gotten older, I've learned to work smarter as well. Where I think, you know, my early approach was a little more brute force, like I'll figure out a way to make it work, you know? And uh, and that was really necessary on the farm, but like, as I've gotten into other things, like taking a step back and looking at, okay, is there a smarter way to go about this? Has saved me time, you know? Um, but, and I think that that became something Eric and I had to be pretty aware of as well is that, our commitment level to the business, we couldn't expect everyone to have that same level of commitment or even availability to commit that amount of time um, to the business. So, um, so that's something we had to keep adjusting, especially as the company grew, so that we could allow space for people that had different life circumstances. You know, so it's not everybody can can work 100 hours a week <laughs> or ever, nor should. You know, yeah. looking back on it, I don't want to either. So it's like yeah. kind of figuring out how to how to get that right balance between finding people like one of my philosophies is always I'd ha- rather have fewer people and be able to reward them more than having a lot of people that are just average or don't or not really engaged you know like that doesn't really get you anywhere so and it's not great experience for the employees either so trying to I, find that balance you know
0: i agree and i think that too often startups sort of congratulate themselves too much on how many people they have working for them um, yeah, and it's just not necessary, you know, and I think, yeah, finding some gems and finding some rubies in the rough is even more exciting, isn't it? And then you can kind of help, help, help them progress and, and lead effectively. Cause you, you whoever you hire needs to become a leader or have the ability to become a leader. And that's going to allow you to step out from what you were doing and think more strategically. So it sounds like you guys were, were, were good at doing that in the early days. Um, yeah, uh, definitely. After, after Vacasa, um, um, you head over to rented.com, is that right?
1: Yeah, I, I I got to know Andrew, the CEO, and Mickey, the co-founder and CEO over there. Um, I was a client, uh, so they had a product in, in the past that um, was essentially a marketplace where owners could list their properties, and then managers could bid on those properties for the rental rights. And usually it was a year one-year term where you would just say, okay, we're going to pay you And then you keep, you know, we would keep the rent as the manager. Um, So the risk uh, and reward of uh, performance was on the manager, which is a very different model than what typically exists in a lot of these destination markets where uh, it's usually a commission based model where the manager earns a commission off the total rent. Now, since, so we started doing that in early days with rented, now, since then, you've had companies like Sonder and others come on and do master leases in urban markets. It's more common, but it wasn't in destination markets. And for us, we would keep it around 10% of our portfolio of that because We didn't want to take too much risk, but we had a lot of uh, good data on the market, um, so we could tell you know was this a property that we were going to be able to perform at, or and put a pretty competitive bid in. And because we were performing so well on the revenue side, that made us a really good client of Renton's, <laughs> because we could always uh, offer a pretty reasonable amount to the owners. And so, in long story short, I, uh, you know, I got to know Andrew personally um, through our uh, relationship working together at Renton and Vacasa, and just uh, had a really great alignment in terms of vision and values. And so. When uh, when I decided I was ready for uh, a new chapter after eight and a half years of uh, grinding in the property manager side, uh, you know, Andrew and I kind of had a, a longstanding uh, conversation going around that. And it happened to work out where Mickey was leaving to start his own management company, Vector Travels. Yeah. And so I was able to kind of come in and fill the gap that uh, Mickey was leaving. Of course, not exactly, right? You know, everybody's always different and they're he had different strengths and, than I did. And, and so, but it, but it worked well. It was a really fun, I was there three and a half years just left in July and it's kind of talking about like allowing people to step up in a leadership position. That was something that I felt uh, one of my greatest, acc- greatest accomplishments that rented was allowing space for people to develop and to take on things, you know, as they were ready for it, where, I, I've never been one in a leadership role to try to say, well, I want to do this thing forever and I'm going to box people out. That's <laughs> generally not a great leadership trait. But uh, we'll say at the time that I ended up leaving Rented in July, I felt really good about um, where the company was and I'm a board member still. And so it's good to be, you know, I'm a, I have vested options in the company and I'm a board member. So I'm glad that I'm really confident about the vision and the and the leadership in place. but. Um, I think that's one of the best things that you can do as a leader is almost make it to where you feel like you're not needed anymore, you know? Yeah. And it was definitely a point where I could have kept doing more things with Brenton. And, and as Andrew would say, I have no shortage of ideas of, of areas that we can help managers, you know, uh, but it's, uh, it, yeah, it was a really fun journey. And it was interesting because we had to go through a few of these different things and challenges with the market drastically changing with with COVID and, I feel good about like how we navigated all that and worked together as a team. so um, so excited to see where they go from here.
0: very interesting. and obviously, you're still involved as a board member, so um yeah, so uh, yeah. big interest in that. I think you made a really good point there, which is that you should try and make yourself redundant, I suppose, if you're doing a leadership role and 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 that actually is the smartest way and to inspire the people who who work for you. It's a brave, it's a brave uh, mentality to have, but I guess Someone of your character, you're always looking at what, uh, over your shoulder as well at, at other things that you can do and more value you can add, which I guess takes us up to where you are at the moment in your your current projects. Can you tell us a bit about bit about those?
1: Yeah, no, definitely. I always have the most fun personally. I've figured this out now that if I can work in white space, that's great for me. Mm-hmm. I, I get excited about that, and you know, once something becomes routine, I, I like to um, be able to hand that to someone who's more like detail like, oriented, operationally focused than I am because I'll, I'll eventually get bored in that type of role. So yeah, now that, that brought me to Realtor.com, which was a surprising landing spot for me personally. Like I never expected really probably about halfway through helping to build Vacasa. I was in a men- mindset where I never really saw myself uh, going anywhere else. Um, so it's kind of surprising even when I came to the conclusion to leave Vacasa, but very surprising when I decided to come to a big established company like realtor.com that my role there is launching a new category within a large company. And that's a new construction category. And so uh, thankfully I you know, kind of came on board in July and I already had a really great team in place. Um, you know, a few people anyway, to start with where, I had a great sales leader. He's uh, Bob uh, that I work really closely with. He understands the industry industry inside and out, and a great product leader, Aaron, on the uh, tech side. And so they've already done a lot of work on this front. But I, we get a lot of we get to experiment and test a lot. And we're you know our our charge is to really grow this category and provide a new and and better experience for both uh, new home buyers and for builders. And so it's an area I get to learn a lot about. Um, but also apply my past experience, which has some really interesting corollaries to the challenges that this industry faces. And so and the leadership has been really uh, amazing to work with. So David Doctorow, who's the CEO, is just uh, really uh, open minded and innovative and and um, building a really great culture of the company. So I'm learning a lot already. I'm just about a month in. but. Uh, anytime I can learn and grow in my role, uh, that that fills my cup. That keeps me happy. So I'm having a good time.
0: <laughs> so you're firmly in the white space at the moment. You're really, you're in the learning, the learning phase.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, it also allowed me a space to work on some of the projects I've had in flight. You know, um, we talked a bit about them before the podcast, but I, I've got uh, a company in Uganda called Stay for Good that's a vacation role management company over there. And Michelle, my country manager over there, uh, runs all the day to day. It's been really challenging with COVID because there's just not that kind of long haul travel really just isn't happening right now. Um, There's very few people traveling to Uganda for tourism. And so uh, we've kind of flipped and really focused on the good and a little less on the stays right now. And we're uh, working with a few families that are starting their own businesses and giving some seed funding there and helping them grow their businesses. And and that correlates with the work I do with Maple, uh, which works in Uganda and Chile. I'm a board member there. Um, We're actually hiring an executive director now. So we're pretty deep in that process. Uh, But that organization really helps communities set up their own village savings and loan groups. So they're all lending amongst each other. And then uh, they come to us. And ask us for uh, different types of resources. It might be learning about accounting skills in some of these areas. It might be access to supply chains in other areas. So there's all these different things that we do depending on the needs of the community. But it's never, hey, we're telling you how to live. You know, it's always the other way around. It's like, tell us, you know, can we be helpful? If not, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> you know, we just uh, we try to make it a, a really good collaboration, and that's been a, a fun way to go.
0: So essentially, you're just providing people the tools they might need to kickstart an idea they already have, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Or And then sometimes, you know, we do introduce people to other community leaders and, and show the models that are working, and then they'll kind of create their own ideas from that. So um, it's, it's just a really great collaborative experience, but the community drives it. And that's something as I've gotten older, I really focus on like, how do you create more independence and community driven uh, leadership as opposed to trying to just standardize everything? It just doesn't work. Like all these communities have their differences. Right. And their yeah. their own culture and their own nuances. Uh, even that have is very different from community to community. And, I, and really the last two years of Bikasa, when I was launching all the international markets, I, I learned a ton on that side um i didn't come i I approached launching those markets similar to how we approach things at maple where i would try to hire somebody as a country manager in the market that had a deep knowledge of how the industry was operating in their country today but was also open-minded about learning about how we were doing things domestically or how um, other countries were operating and maybe taking that and applying it and testing it in their own markets so it's uh, it's shared knowledge, but not forced knowledge, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it, I love I love hearing you talk about it because it's incredibly it's incredibly um, true, isn't it? Like you know you have to you have to allow local knowledge to 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 trump sort of central ideas, right? Otherwise those central ideas suddenly don't seem that relevant when you apply them in a different setting. Um, There's a lot of examples of that in development work. So I'm really interested. We should be definitely talking more about Maple microdevelopment because it sounds incredibly interesting. And then also um, stay for good. So you you talked about Mm -hmm. getting other families involved. So I guess same principle, you kind of give people the tools and let them set up their own vacation rental businesses.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a little different on stay for good. Oh yeah, that's definitely part of it. I mean, one of the big visions that we have is uh democratization of land and home ownership. And in the US, it's, it's interesting. And that's something we're looking at at realtor.com too, is looking at how to get more first time home buyers in the market. That's a very, it's an interesting because there's the same problem in Uganda, but very different, right? Like the Delta between The wealthy and uh, those that have very little is extremely vast in Uganda. And so but there is a local law that you have to be um, a resident, uh, a citizen of Uganda to own land there, at least 50-50 on a property, which prevents a little bit of what we see in some other uh, countries where, um, you know, foreign interests will come in and buy up a lot of property. And so what we're doing a little bit on the safer good side is trying to figure out the barriers for property ownership and also whether people want to own property, like not just assuming that everybody wants to own property, Um, but generally they do. Um, And there's ways that we can kind of work together with them to get a vacation rental on the property to generate income to help pay for the property. Which helps them then have their own home that they own instead of uh, being in a cycle of renting. Because the rent rates there compared to um, home ownership uh, prices are there's a huge disparity. Rent is very high still, despite the fact that buying property is relatively inexpensive. And so there's some really interesting dynamics. And it's like I, I've taken a lot of what I've learned from vacation rentals uh, and applying it to economic theory in general. So trying to figure out, okay, if we can use the vacation rental as the vehicle to generate revenue, because tourists are less price sensitive than uh, people that live in a community, then we can use that revenue for good. And so in Stay for Good in Uganda, the focus is on uh, people and some work I'm doing in the US uh, is under a company called TreeStay is identifying properties that would be a good vacation rentals because they're proximity to major metros and natural features like rivers, things like that. And then using the revenue from the vacation rental to get conservation easements on the land. So essentially, uh, you know, perpetually conserving and then restoring habitats on this land. And so I'm really excited about this. I have a really cool group of people working with me on it. Uh, And right now we're really in the like land identification stage and, Evaluating which locations make sense from a conservation easement standpoint and all that, but Vermont's actually a really good area for it. So I'm not. I'm in the heart of one.
0: <laughs> yeah, I can. I can imagine, you've, you, and I, we talked about that last time we spoke as well. Really, really interesting. We could. I, I, I suspected we'd need more than the allotted twenty five minutes because it because you are <laughs> as much as you say you work smart. You seem to work smart, but you also still seem to work very hard.
1: Um, <laughs> well, my wife, my wife will always say I fill any gap I have of time pretty quickly. <laughs> so i'm trying to uh, trying to get better about that but there's always more to do for sure
0: <laughs> well, let's talk about this environmental project it sounds really interesting do you think i was thinking about this the other day and preparing uh for you and i talking and i thought we really have got to push the idea that people need to take their vacations a little bit slower and therefore not necessarily have to fly in but actually mm-hmm. you know Take a train somewhere, drive somewhere, spend some driving your electric car somewhere and spend a good portion of time out in the country so that you're more attached to nature, even if you live in a city. Um, is, that, is that the idea of, of this? You know, you want people to come and stay for three weeks a month and really, really experience it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that would be ideal, right? And I think in the US, we have a major problem where people just don't use their vacation uh, time at all. I see that as a major problem because I think it it contributes to all of these other uh, psychological issues that we have within our population around um, burnout and yeah. um, you know some really dark areas like drug use and suicide and stuff that we don't need to go too in depth on but I think this the idea is to make it accessible right so that I think there's a lot of uh, trends towards expensive glamping uh, accommodations, or I love tree houses, but a lot of them end up being $500 a night or something like that. And they're really inaccessible to the general population. So I think what we're doing before anything else is making a an attractive accommodation, like you're not asking people to change their lifestyle because that just doesn't happen, right? Like as much as I'd like people to be wanna like in my perfect world, like we could all live off the grid and be happy and be connected to nature and everything. But getting people from like mass consumerism to that level, it's not going to happen just because we tell them to do it. Instead, it's more about like kind of meeting them where they are, uh giving them the type of experience they want, but in a setting that is going to make it easy for them to be more eco-friendly, where mm-hmm. like we've done that work for them. And we're talking a lot about like introducing like even something as simple as the supplies. I see a lot of vacational managers that will just go out and buy whatever's cheapest or whatever is like the quality minimum that they want to meet and the cheapest, you know, or whatever that is. But very rarely is it the most intentional from an eco standpoint. And I think given what's going on in the world and I, I mean, this is something I'm not ashamed to like go out and, you know, call for the mountaintop. It's like it's going to take a collective effort yeah. and we can't shame people for um, for the their lifestyles now because it's just a byproduct of how people were raised and like how we've lived for the last, you know, 150 years really is when most of the damage occurred. And and so it's, it's interesting. I think somebody is like uh, we, we came up with like a little phrase, education without pretension. So not assuming we know everything right but trying to like share the knowledge that we've gained and then share the knowledge in a passive way about how their stay is is a positive thing you know as opposed to why somewhere else they might stay could be extractive where it's you know uh, harmful for the environment pulling money away from the community and all these other things that can happen
0: Really, really interesting, and I, I completely agree. You have to make it accessible. It can't be the preserve of the rich, um, you know. Which is why things like carbon offsetting, are, you know, not really the answer, right? Because it's just people feeling better about their own their own um, polluting. But you know, I think that um, it. it there's a lot of changes that are fairly easy to make if you're a vacation rental manager. It's just the education behind it, right? And if you point out to people, hold on a minute, it's going to cost you a bit more, but you're going to put a product in there, um, which is not going to do damage to the environment or certainly nearly as much damage. I, th- I think people generally are open to listening. You just need mm-hmm. people like you and all of us in the industry shouting from the rooftops about it. I, I spent probably... I don't know, three, I'm trying to think, maybe. I did 25 flights maybe in, in 2019, right? Trying to grow and develop the, the business that I work for and do doing industry events. And, you know, I, I was very grounded like everybody was for the last 18 months. And I kind of thought, I, I really can't do that again. And it did get me thinking about this idea that if you want to experience the world, then now you, you kind of just need to slow down and think about how you're doing it. And, you know, we, we have got this opportunity Lots of us, very, very luckily, have got the opportunity to work from home and therefore do it in a sort of slower way. And you talk about burnout and depression and suicide. And and I think that the fact that a family can now make it a one-week holiday and then the parents go back to work for two weeks, but the family gets to stay on in the vacation rental, mm-hmm. that there is that opportunity to, to, to take your time getting there, not, not use a, a plane, and also go somewhere that does get you out and about in the, in the countryside, in amongst all that lovely green... Um, that lifts your mood and makes you realize how important it is to preserve it. And I just hope we can really capitalize on that. And I hope that offices don't unnecessarily bring people back and and, and stop that.
1: No, I, I think that's a, a really great point. It's an opportunity. It's whether we take it or not, it's an opportunity for us to reflect on what is truly necessary. Um, and I think, you know, even being at, at realtor.com and right now, it's taking a very, I think, um, you know, positive approach to this and and really like let's wait and really reconsider uh, what our work life entails and like what's necessary. Should we be in office? Should we not? You know, and there's a lot of companies that, you know, are stuck with these big leases that will end up driving decisions about getting people like arbitrarily back in an office because they have an expensive lease attached to it, as opposed to whether it's the right thing uh, for the employee. And I think this like kind of grand experiment has now taken place where people saw uh, what worked and what didn't like in terms of, you know, like allowing people the freedom to work remotely and, and where does that work? And so much of it comes down to, is your team motivated to work for you or not? Because if they just see it as a paycheck, yeah. um, there's a much greater risk that, you know, it's not going to work for them to be remote. And I take that as a responsibility as a leader, as an employer, as opposed to a complaint. Like if I'm complaining that my employee is not motivated, I either probably am hiring the wrong people or I'm doing the wrong thing in terms of how I'm trying to motivate them. You know, So I think there's a lot for us to learn just from on leadership in general from this.
0: I think it's a very, very, very good point. Um, and if you've hired the right people and they believe in your methods, they will, they'll work for you they work for you when they're anywhere in the world.
1: Yeah. And I, I think to your point, I mean, just looking at, you know, making those decisions, it's, it's interesting because depending on where people live, they, you know, they might have a lot of environmental guilt, but not a lot of ways to improve their lifestyle. So I think making it really manageable um, is important. Like, let's take... Uh, you know, rural America, for example, there's really no public transit. Um, and uh, in a lot of rural America, people are are paid uh, pretty low wages or, you know, the the level of poverty in rural America is really high. And it's like areas I grew up in. And so the opportunity for people to switch to have a really eco-friendly lifestyle from the onset are, are pretty limited. But there are steps that can uh, take place. Like one of the things being in Vermont has been pretty interesting because there's a lot of programs designed to specifically help uh, people that don't have a lot of money be more eco-friendly. And one of those is like incentives for used hybrids and electric cars. Whereas in a lot of places, a lot of the incentives and credits are just for new you know, everything's for new, which really only helps rich people because it's like uh, most people are not out buying $50,000 Teslas, you know, so it's like, so it's really interesting to start thinking about what are those incremental steps? And some of that is like where you source your food. It was really interesting for me growing up on a farm is that we were sending most of the food out and then we were getting uh, like healthy food that was generally not as healthy, not as fresh, like back in our local stores, you know, so it was pretty, and and more expensive because there's not as much volume coming in. So I'm uh, thinking a lot about supply chain and how that impacts the environment in general. And and uh, people who live in these rural areas tend to be more in touch with like where their food comes from, those types of things, but also have less means to change the habits and, uh, and even if they wanna buy organic, maybe they can't afford to. So thinking about how do you eliminate some of those uh, gaps, you know?
0: Very, very important questions, and I completely agree. It cannot be the preserve of the haves. It needs to. Yeah. It, it needs to be across the board, doesn't it? It needs to be across the board, and it's all well and good. But those people who can maybe afford to buy electric cars are maybe the people that you know, like me, took far too many flights before and now need to really look at themselves and say, I "Can't I can't just preach to other people just because I can afford to buy, you know, uh, insert brand name here if you want a type of electric." car. <laughs> Um, yeah, really- me,
1: me as well. I, I share that. It's like I, I look at my lifestyle, right? And I'm not one to preach because it's, for one thing, you know, it wasn't ingrained in me like until I uh, probably until college that I started becoming aware of it. And even after that, there's all these decisions we're faced with, which are, you know, lifestyle versus like the best thing for me to do would be go out to an off the grid farm and and like live off the land forever. But I haven't done that, you know, so it's kind of in- interesting to think about, like, how do we take those paths in our own lives and outlines and and try to just get incrementally better to the point where it all becomes um, mainstream to, to do the right thing for the environment. So.
0: Excellent. Cliff, um, I could talk to you all day when um, about- <laughs> you it's so interesting and um, tell me when you're not working yeah. how, you, how, you rela- how are you relaxing?
1: Yeah I mean I, I, uh, any, really being active like yeah, unfortunately a lot of my work is on the computer <laughs> you know so when I'm not working I like to be off of the off of devices uh, whatever I can do like mountain biking running like this is one of the motivators for coming to a place like uh, Woodstock is that Every season of the year, there's a reason to be outside, you know, and and doing something active. So, uh, yeah, I just spending time with my kids. And I'm pretty simple when it comes to outside of work. It's like if I can be uh, running around uh, with the kids or or friends and doing that kind of stuff or playing music. I, I grew up doing theater as well. Yeah. I, I haven't really done anything significant in theater since 2007, but that's something that I always have a passion for and interest in my life is to Support the arts and, and be
0: involved whenever I can. <laughs> amazing. That sounds great. Where, where would you go in Vermont to, to scratch that itch? Is it far? For theater? Mm-hmm. Um, actually,
1: there's a few local theaters right in my town here. And then uh, Dartmouth College, which is an Ivy League school, which is just 30 minutes away. So they have a lot of great uh, productions and everything as well. And if I really want to scratch it, New York's four hours, Boston's two, and Montreal's three. So I've got uh, some pretty amazing stuff around here.
0: Wow. Amazing. It's, um, <laughs> uh, I think it's so important as well, just to, that answer, that answer comes up time and time again, just spending time with my kids, like, like being in nature, walking around, hanging out, being together, like so, so, so important, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I learn more from them than anything else I do. because It's just, they, they keep asking the questions that I think we've all forgotten as adults, you know? And so every morning, that's how I start my morning. So like generally about two hours of solid time with the kids with really no interruptions, And it just sets me in the right path for the day. Cause I'm just, uh, yeah, allows me to really focus on, uh excitement of life and uh, unknown there there's no idea that's that's irrational to them <laughs> you know so it's it's so great because the things that uh come out of their mouth are just amazing like and uh just gets you thinking on a different path. So,
0: I couldn't agree more. They're they're so inquisitive aren't they? My my niece and nephew they're so inquisitive about the world and it it's a reminder to all of us that we should keep that enthusiasm.
1: Yeah it's so critical too to keep encouraging them to be that way. And I think back, like, yeah, thankfully, I like, my parents were, were open that way, um, you know, and so I wasn't really stifled in my intellectual curiosity. But, I mean, there was a culture for a long time period where, like, you know, kids are to be seen, not heard, and whatever, and all these old idioms that don't make any sense anymore, <laughs> you know. But it's like, for me, it's, it's how to keep that spark there. And that's just something I feel a, a big responsibility as a parent.
0: Ultimately, I'm sure from talking to you about this, I know you see that as your most important job.
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's the thing I think that I I like the most too. So it works out well.
0: (laughs) Well, look, Cliff, it's been an absolute pleasure. We will talk again. I'm sure we'll see each other in person um, when the world gets a bit more normal. But until then, keep doing what you're doing. and, And thanks for thanks for dropping by to talk to us. Oh, it's my pleasure.
1: And uh, yeah, look forward to seeing you in person uh, as soon as time allows. <laughs> Thanks, Cliff.